Welcome to Disrupting Japan. Straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for joining me. Smart homes and smart speakers haven't really changed our lives in the way that was predicted. I mean, it's not that they haven't sold well. Amazon has sold over a hundred million Alexa enabled devices, and the technology is really amazing. But voice assistants remain a novelty rather than a real step forward. And here in Japan, even with Japanese language support, the adoption rate has been low. I think a big part of that is the lack of connectivity. And, and by connectivity, I don't mean the ability to connect to a computer or interact with other programs. I mean, smart speakers don't connect us to each other in new ways. In the end, they're just an input device. They don't provide something that we don't already have in our lives. Well, today, I'd like you to meet Harumi Shinode, the founder and CEO of Nature. Who's created a new smart home device, the Nature Remo? Now, the Nature Remo provides some immediate utility the ability to control your lights and your air conditioner from your smartphone or based on rules that you set up. But the real reason that nature is so interesting is what comes next. It's a lot more than just turning your lights on and off, it's a new way of connecting with each other. And a new way for power companies to manage the power grid during times of peak load. But you know, Harumi tells that story much better than I can. So let's get right to the interview. So I'm sitting here with Harumi Shiode of Nature. So thanks for sitting down with me. Thanks for inviting me for this podcast. Now I've been looking forward to it. So Nature makes the, the Nature Remo. Which is a really interesting device that, that you can probably explain a lot better than I can. So, so, what is the Remo and how does it work? Nature Remo is basically a very small, tiny device that can turn your AC or TV or lighting to a smart device. It communicates with those appliances through the infrared and it connects to the Wi Fi so that you can control from, a, from your smartphone or smart speakers. Okay, so infrared means it's sort of. It's emulating the remote control for your TV or your air conditioning. Yes. Ah, okay, cool. So if it's infrared, and、uh, so if I wanted to outfit my apartment with these and control all my air conditioning units and my, my TV, so would I need one Remo in each, in each room? Yeah, you have to have one device per room. Okay. And since it's infrared, it needs to be line of sight. So you mount these like on the wall or high up in the rooms? Uh, you can put anywhere.、Oh. Yeah. yeah, it just has to be line of sight to the appliance.、Okay. And just to give some background to the audience, in Japan, most of the air conditioner comes with infrared remote control. And obviously, TV comes with、uh, infrared remote control. So, what, when the Google Home or Amazon Echo was launched in Japanese market, there w a s n t many smart home devices that can speak with those smart speakers. The, the people want to have kind of the bridging device. So, Nature Remote was exactly that one. Okay. So, actually, anything with a remote control, it could control, right? Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Or infrared remote control, to、right. be precise. Yes. All right. And what are these devices, what do they cost? 
So right now we are uh, giving a little bit discount. So it's uh, selling at around 70 US dollars. So tell me about your customers. So how many users do you have and, and what kind of people are they? So our user base is getting close to 100,000.、Uh, we just recently did the, the customer survey and we got a response from more than 2,000 customers. Majority of our customer is the male and aged between、uh, late 20 to 50s. Then many of them work for like, IT or like, the,、uh, the makers in, in Japan. So they are kind of tech savvy. Definitely the early adopter profile, yes. right? Yes. So, is there motivation playing with cool new gadgets, or what do you think the main motivation for your, your current customer base is? Two big reasons why they're buying a device. One is they have Google Home, Amazon Echo, they want to control the home appliances with their voice, so they buy our device. And the other reason is、uh, our customers want to control those home appliances from the smartphone, like turning on the AC before they come back. So, it's mainly convenience. Yes. We'll dive into the business model in, in a few minutes, but before that, I want to back up a bit and talk about you. Okay. Now, you quit Mitsui to go to Harvard Business School. And in another interview you did, I noticed that you said you, you went to Harvard to start a startup. Yes. Which just struck me as a really weird thing. Phrase. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, most people, I, I hear people who move to San Francisco to start a startup all the time, but Harvard MBAs tend to go into investment banking or, or consulting. So, what, <laughs> what were you thinking? Even if I look at the,、uh, the stats, that is not exactly true because Harvard has been putting a huge effort to promote entrepreneurship and there's a bunch of entrepreneurs. And if you think about Japanese market, Two big entrepreneurs are there, have our MBA alumni. One is Mikitani san from Rakuten, the largest e commerce company in Japan, and the other one is Namba san from DNA. They, they, they are both from Harvard Business School, but probably you can't name a big entrepreneur、uh, from Stanford Business School. From Japan? Yeah. No,、uh, no you're right, I can't. But I mean,、yeah, but Namba san I... and Mikitani san, they, they're kind of entrepreneurial journey. It's almost like the last generation、yes. of Japanese entrepreneurs, right? I mean, that was back when starting a company meant you had to have the right connections to the right people, and, and it's different now. Yeah, so I knew that I'm going to start my own startup when I was 10. My father was an entrepreneur, so I have been observing him like, starting a company and a really exciting moment of Like launching his own product. So, I have been preparing to, to start my, my company. The last missing piece for me was a global connection. Looking at your website, it looks like the, the Harvard experience really helped you. You participated in a lot of startup programs and won a few competitions that were directly related to that, that school.、Mm-hmm. I, I think it helps a lot in many ways. So, probably the biggest one is the, the trust that I can get from typically a B2B partners. In Japan, everybody knows Harvard Business School. So if I say, or even I don't need to say that, and then they, they, they see me on the, on the website, and then they see that I graduated from Harvard Business School. So you, you founded the company while you were at Harvard? Yes. Your launch, so you founded in 2014, right? Yes. And in 2016, you launched a Kickstarter campaign, an Indiegogo campaign, and a Makuake campaign. Yes. All at the same time? No, I,、uh, we started from Kickstarter. 
and then moved to Indiegogo and then started the, the Makuaki campaign here in Japan. So what was the objective of the multiple platforms? Were you fundraising or was this part of your marketing campaign? Pretty much about our marketing campaign, but there was a big trend in the crowdfunding circle, starting with uh, Kickstarter and then shifting to Indiegogo. So because Kickstarter is only 30 days, but Indiegogo you can run as long as you want. So after you finish Kickstarter, people were doing the, the Indiegogo right after that. And Makuake, the reason why we did Makuake is there's a bunch of Japanese potential customers mm-hmm. who are not familiar, who are not really good at English. So we wanted to reach out to those audience as well. For marketing purposes? Yes. All right. I mean, obviously the Makuake backers were all Japanese, but for the Kickstarter and Indiegogo, were most of your backers from the U.S. or from Japan or from somewhere else? Yeah, that's another reason why we did Makuake. So after doing Kickstarter, we found 50% of our backers are from Japan, and 30% is probably the U.S., and then 20% is the rest of the world. So we saw a big traction from the Japanese market. Yeah, then we, we did Makuake to, to get the beer customers. So, so you had 50% backing from Japan, and your Kickstarter page, did you have a Japanese Kickstarter page, or did you only launch in English? In the beginning, we probably didn't have the Japanese translation, but we created the Japanese one in the middle of the campaign. All right. That seems to have worked out well for you. Is that, is that a path you'd recommend for other hardware startups, this this running through the procession? So depending on which market that they are targeting, because if you're just targeting the Japanese market, probably they don't need to go to the Kickstarter and launching the English website. So we shipped anywhere, uh, but we found the difficulty answering the requests from the customers all over the world. Think about air conditioner. So in Japan, the big brand... So the requests were being like feature requests or like complaints and bug reports? Uh, so it's about support for the AC. So we, we prepared a preset for air conditioner. Air conditioner has a different infrared signal. Mm-hmm. So we have a database so that the customer doesn't need to configure by themselves. All setup is done, complete. So in order for us to, to make it happen, we have to have remote controller in our database. Right. If you think about different market, the, the AC that are used in those countries are different from here. Okay. And I imagine that it's not difficult to support new types, but it's just you have to do it. You have to get that information into the database. And, yes, yes. Yeah. When you launched your service, you launched it in English first, right? Mm-hmm. Well, why did you do that? Why did you launch in English rather than Japanese? So originally, we wanted to sell the device globally. So that's why we didn't want to limit the Japanese market. As long as we do it in English, we can reach out to the global audience. But once we start, we just found supporting everywhere in the world is, is very difficult. So we decided to focus on Japanese market first. But now we are preparing to, to, to go overseas. So most of your customers now are in Japan? Yes. Or? Okay. The markets really are different. So most of our listeners will know about the Nest, the smart thermostat that was bought by Google. One of the most important differences, I imagine, in your market between the U.S. and Japan is in the U.S., most new homes anyway have central air conditioning, central heating, whereas in Japan, that's, that's pretty rare. Yes. So most of the Japanese house, and I think like very close to the 99 or 98% of the Japanese house has a mini-spritz system, like the one that is hooked on the wall. Yeah. 
So what has been your main sales channels? I've noticed you're selling on Amazon, which makes sense since it's compatible with Alexa. Mm -hmm. Is that your main sales channel or do you also sell other places? Yeah, we sell many different places. We sell offline. So right now, our device is sold more than 600 retail stores across Japan. But still, the EC is probably the strongest channel. Yeah, I, I suppose so, especially with the early adopters, yes, right? Yes, yes. So even in the stores you're selling in, are they like Big Camera or yeah. Yodobashi? Oh, okay. Big Camera, Yodobashi, Yamada, Denki. Okay, so all the mainstream yes. stores. Fantastic. Oh, that is great. And the good thing about it is the Google Home is sold in those stores. And our device has good fit with Google Home. Mm-hmm. Because like Google Home users, they want to control home appliances, they find our device. So our device is sitting right next to Google Home in those stores. Ah, right. So is that the main way your users interact with Remo? Is it through Google Home or Alexa? Or do a lot of your users use the app? Yeah, a lot of users use uh, app as well. And also we offer the automated kind of rule. So they can say, if the temperature goes uh, more than 25 degrees, just turn on the AC. Or... If there's no motion in the room, just turn off the right. Okay. So there's automation. And can you do geofencing? So like when I'm five minutes away from home, turn on the air conditioning? Yes, yes. Oh, that's great. Especially in Tokyo summers. Yeah. <laughs> what about the production side? Where do you, where do you manufacture? Oh, yeah, we do manufacturing in China. Okay. And we have been spending a bunch of effort to... <laughs> Oh, let's, let's dig into that. So let's back up to the prototype first. So did you, were you working with the Chinese factories even when you were developing your prototypes? Or were you developing your prototypes on your own? Yeah, we, we worked with uh, the Chinese factory for the prototyping. Yeah. And so, so, <laughs> <laughs> so in the beginning, when we just launched on Kickstarter, we were supposed to use the, the manufacturer in Taiwan, but the deal didn't work out, and we found it after closing the campaign. Oh, so God. that was so brutal. So we spent two months visiting more than 10 factories in China. Then we finally found uh, a good partner. Well, what, how do you know when you found a good partner? Because all hardware startups are like trying to figure this out. Yes. So... Every manufacturer in China and Taiwan will say, yeah, we can build that. No problem. So what are you asking them? How are you, how are you vetting them to make sure that this is the partner you want to work with? Yeah, so that was very clear for me when I first met with, with the partner. So our device comes with a few sensors, including the, the motion sensor. And then our front cover also acts as a lens for the motion sensor. It's called the Fresnel lens. The, the factory who can make the combined Fresnel lens with the cover is, is super limited. Ah. And then when, I, when we first visited the factory, president came out and he has shown a bunch of different samples for the companies across the world. And then he was an engineer and I thought he's someone who we can trust. So we closed the deal in half an hour we sign a contract in one hour and we send the money in two hours. Wow. That was really good for building a relationship as well. So he's telling this story to all the, 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 the customers he met after, after <laughs> us was to convince them to work with him. And then the, he has supported 
a lot. So I think in the beginning, they didn't make any money for us. We made like more than 30 samples to make the, the cover white. So before us, there wasn't any completely white cover for infrared remote control. It's typically black. Why? Because black has a better transmittance for the infrared signal. Oh, okay. So people make it black, but if you think about putting the device on the wall, it's a lot better if it's white. Right, right. So we spend huge effort for that. Well, having gone through that, I mean, what, what advice would you have for other hardware startup founders who are just about to go through this process? Um, so the, the learning for, for us is depending on the stage of the company, depending on the quantity of your order, the light partner is different. So in the beginning, if you only have like a few thousand quantity, you can't get Foxconn work for you. Because Foxconn, they always require a huge quantity. So you have to live with a smaller factory. So the smaller factory is almost managed by the, the president of the factory. So if the president is someone who you can trust, probably that's the right company that you can work. And then when, once the, the, the quantity grows, you can start working with, with a bigger partner. So early on, that, that personal relationship is just as much or even more important than technical specifications and capabilities. So depending on how difficult to make a product, but if you're making not kind of rocket science product, probably the, the personal relationship. Yeah, well, I, but I think that's, I mean, if you're trying to do something that, that's innovative and that's new with hardware, I mean, you're going to have to iterate. I mean, I think you'd really, having someone who's willing to work with you yeah. and willing to come back and say, hey, I know you want it like this, but if we change this a little bit, you know, maybe there's another way. Maybe this is better. I mean, I think... Yeah, so in our case, there was some difficulty in the plastic manufacturing. But in many cases, you think about IoT device, the innovation is more on the software side. So that case, mm. the, the hardware is rather simple. So depending on the, your product type. That makes sense. So what is nature's business model? Are you just selling the devices? Do you sell a subscription? Are you collecting usage data in the same way Nest does? Uh, right now, our revenue model is basically selling this hardware. But we are not just doing it for being a hardware company, I studied nature to change the energy industry. And we just recently launched a new product called Remoe that is more like energy management. So we are trying to dig deeper into the energy side uh, of the business. Well, yeah, let's, let's talk demand response. Yeah, sure. Uh, the work you're doing with Kansai Electric mm-hmm. is super interesting. And well, tell me about it. Yeah, so I think it's from 2016. Uh, we worked with Constant Electric and did the, the demand side management using the, the Nature Remo because it has access to air conditioner. The objective was connecting Nature Remo to a bunch of air conditioner and creating the demand side resources. So when, when power usage is really high, yep. the power company could send out a, a request and all of the Remo devices would lower their air conditioning by like one degree or something like that? Yeah, exactly. And just to give you some idea of the number, so in Japan, 
30% of the consumption comes from the residential sector. And then 50% of the demand, peak demand, comes from AC. So as I said earlier, AC has uh, almost 100% remote control, uh, has a remote controller. If we can replace the remote controller with nature remote, then we can potentially have access to 15% of the peak demand in Japan. So that's a huge number. I see that as being a great thing for the power companies, but as me as a selfish consumer, why do I want my air temperature lowered by one degree? So there, there, there should be a kind of rebate system. We pay you and you collaborate. So that's the kind of the, the model that we have been thinking. But even before we reach to that point, uh, we realize selling this device as it is, is pretty critical because unless we have a bunch of customers, we can't offer attractive demand-side management resources. Yeah, yeah. So do you ever think you'll get to a point where, because demand response is such an important thing for grid management, power grid management around the world. Mm-hmm. Do you think we'll get to a point where the electric utilities will be paying for these devices to putting in everyone's homes for free? That's a good question. So probably I should explain a little bit about the Japanese power market. Uh, when I started Nature, it was like 2014. So it's like three years after the Fukushima action happened. Right. So there wasn't any uh, nuclear power plant running at that time. But the Japanese government uh, made the policy and some of the nuclear power plant is coming up. So we have more base load. We don't have much shortage of the, the power consumption at that moment. Originally, we, were, we wanted to put the nature remote device in the home and monetize with demand-side management. But because of the government policy, it's not that easy for us to, to monetize with the demand-side management. Mm-hmm. So we pivoted a little bit. And right now, focusing 100% on selling nature remote device to the consumer. But with nature remote E of a new device, we are trying to completely change the dynamics of the power consumption so instead of buying the power from the big coal-fired or gas-fired power plant, we want to connect the individual so that they can exchange electricity locally. So would this be, for example, people who have solar panels on their roofs? Yes. And, okay. So it's people who are actually generating electricity yes. as well as consuming it? Yes. Okay, fantastic. Wow, that really breaks into a whole lot of potential new business models in there, doesn't it? But the Japanese energy markets, well, energy markets all over the world are changing so much now. Mm-hmm. But I think Japan has a very interesting potential uh, because of several reasons. One, the smart meter is getting very common. So even now, like more than 50% of the houses have smart meter in Kansai area. Yeah. In but, fact, by, by 2020, it's supposed to be, all of Kansai is supposed to be smart metered. And by 2024, all of yeah. Japan Exactly. With, with Okinawa bringing up the rear. And yeah. And then the other interesting point is Japanese smart meter speaks Waisan. And as long as we have a device that can speak Waisan, we can interact directly with smart meter. So that's very unique in Japanese market. And, and why is that important? Just for uh, confirmation and billing and monitoring? Yeah. So as I said, uh, we won't create a platform so that the, our consumer can exchange directly. So you have, to, you have to know the real-time consumption of production. Unless you have a device that can speak directly with smart meter, you can't get that data. Right, right. Like right now, even Tokyo Electric, they don't have that data. 
So we want to push our remote E and then get that data and create a platform. Okay. Let's talk about Japan in general.、Mm-hmm. You used to work for Mitsui, and I've noticed that there's a lot of Mitsui alumni who have started companies.、Uh, a number of my friends who've been on the show,、uh, Terada san and Inada san. And for a large Japanese enterprise, Mitsui seems like they're extremely supportive of entrepreneurs and people leaving the company. Do they have like a, a strong support network? I think it's more about the mindset. It's more about Mitsui's culture. Like, we often compare Mitsui and Mitsubishi. Mitsui more like focusing on the people. In my previous work at Mitsui, I was working for kind of coal fire, like big project. But that was very clear that our, my boss was trying to let me do that job by myself as much as possible rather than just like giving a very precise instruction for all the details. Yeah, so we, I think Mitsui has kind of entrepreneurial culture. And that was very clear. Even after the Zaibatsu had to decompose around 50, 60 years ago, there is a, a bunch of Mitsui related companies, but they changed the name. Like, for example, one of the big examples is Toshiba. I, I don't think people really noticed that Toshiba used to be Mitsui's group. So Mitsui really s u p p o r t kind of independence. But Mitsubishi, all the company,、Our、they、Mitsubishi、still have branded, Mitsubishi. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm very impressed. I mean, Mitsui is doing something right.、Mm. I mean, they, they have that trading company DNA. Yeah. So it makes sense there's a lot of kind of innovators and deal makers.、Mm. I've been impressed at how friendly and connected they stay with the people who quit the company and start their own thing.、Mm. Yeah, but in that sense, I think the most innovative one is probably recruit. They maintain the alumni network and connect even existing employees with the, the alumni.、Yeah. Well, I think it's, it, it's great to see it happening in Japan because in the US, this is such an important, like these alumni networks are so important for innovation in general and the way innovation filters up into big companies. Let's see, your, your Japan operations are based in Kyoto, right?、Uh, I incorporated nature. Japan in the beginning in Kyoto. Why, why Kyoto? Several reasons. But one, I thought Kyoto is the best place in Japan for a kind of global company. Because like, everyone knows Kyoto. Kyoto is, is, is a very good place to, to visit and also for, for the foreigners. And the second reason was my parents、uh, w a s living in Kyoto at that time. So I could、uh-huh. just borrow. The address. <laughs> well, that's. <laughs> and incorporate the company. <laughs> There's a lot of innovative startups in Kyoto these days. It's becoming a real innovation hub in Japan. Yeah.、Uh, and a lot of hardware startups come to think of it. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I know several of them. But earlier you were telling me you've decided to move the headquarters to Tokyo. Yes. Once we start the operation, We realize most of the thing in Japanese business scene is happening in Tokyo. Even if you think about like, hiring、uh, good talent, it's very concentrated in Tokyo area. And all the business activities, like, even like, meeting with、uh, partners and developing the business, 
it's a lot more efficient if you're in Tokyo. So we decided to, to give up the idea of having a company in Kyoto and doing everything. No, I, I admit, like, the, the, the practical, logical business decision is to move to Tokyo. That's the good call. But what I'm amazed at is the number of successful startups coming out of like Fukuoka、mm. and Kyoto、mm. who kind of refuse to make the rational, logical business choice and they keep headquarters in Fukuoka or Kyoto and、mm. open like a sales office.、Mm. I think it makes it harder for those companies, but I think it's much better for those ecosystems. And I think、yeah. that's, that attitude, I think, is like really good for those cities. Yeah. So, if I had a better connection in Kyoto, like working for like Nintendo or like those companies, then yeah, my decision might have been different. But I don't know anyone in Kyoto. <laughs> <laughs> so, I have a better connection in Tokyo. So, that, that makes was, sense. Yeah. Um, well, listen, Harumi, before we wrap up, I want to ask you what I call my magic wand question.、Mm. And that is if I gave you a magic wand and I told you that you could change one thing about Japan, anything at all, the education system, the way people think about risk, the way people approach innovation, anything at all to make it better for startups and innovation in Japan. What would you change? Yeah, I, I, I have a very clear answer for that. So it's regulation. Regulations? Yeah. So, how the government、uh, d e a l with regulation here in Japan is not really helpful for s t a r t u p and it's more like protecting large organizations. You think about Uber, like the ride sharing, and you think about the Airbnb, Uber couldn't come to the Japanese market. Even though they couldn't come to the Japanese market, There should have been Japanese startups doing the ride sharing business.、Uh-huh. Because, so, the, the, the reason why we don't have a big ride sharing business in Japan is because of the regulation. It, it's not allowed. So, that's why it couldn't happen. And the same thing for the Airbnb. The Japanese government basically banned. But how do you balance that? Because, all right, I, I'm an American, and Americans are, it's easy to hate regulations,、mm-hmm. right? But, You can't just say all regulations are bad because a lot of them are there for a reason. Yep. You know? So, do you think there needs to be a better approach to, to making regulations or a better approach to like, changing regulations that exist? Or, because the thing is, most Japanese people seem pretty happy with those, with those regulations, right?、Mm. Most, like, most of the Americans kind of stood behind Uber and said, yes, we don't want these regulations, they're bad.、Mm. And, Most of the Japanese, though, kind of stood behind the government and said, no, no, we like these regulations. We don't, we don't want Uber or Airbnb. I don't think so. No?、Uh, okay, maybe to be precise, what I think should be changed is how we handle the existing regulation. For example, if I see the American like, society or culture, so if there's any like, gray lines in the regulation, if there's something that is not really、uh, forbidden by the regulation, You try and change the market and let the regulation to accommodate the innovation that you have already made. But in Japan, I think mostly for the, the big corporation, they try to check everything you think. And if it's, if it's not clearly okay, they don't do it. Ah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
yeah. So in America, that that gray area, that that yellow light means go ahead and try it.、Mm. And in Japan, that gray area means stop, don't yeah, try it. Yeah, especially for startup, trying is everything. You don't really know what is right until you you try.、Yeah. I mean, like market reaction and, and those kind of stuff. Do you see that changing in Japan? I, I certainly see that attitude changing among younger founders. Yeah, for the younger founders, but there's always politics, and that is really highly related with. The economic growth or like the innovation, so the, the, this political side is being、uh, the bottleneck for for Japanese regulation. Yeah, I guess it is challenging because for the last seventy years,、mm-hmm. regulations were made with basically the bureaucrats talking with the the leaders of industry,、mm. saying this is practical, this is what we should do, and. For the last seventy years, it kind of made sense because the big companies were leading the economy.、Mm. But now we're in a position where we're having a lot of smaller companies. That's where all the growth and innovation is coming from,、mm-hmm. and they don't have that government connection. Yeah, one of the the other example for Japanese, the politics is, yeah, if you think about like Japan as a country, we don't have any fossil fuels, and then Japan is is isolated island, and We had the the nuclear accident, but if you think about Taiwan or you think about Germany, they decided not to go with nuclear power at all.、Yeah. But here in Japan, we still have nuclear power plant、yeah. coming up. But if we don't have nuclear power at all, there is gonna be more like innovation that has to happen in this market. I agree, and I think Germ- you bring up Germany, and that's such a good example of this.、Mm. Because Germany has been so aggressive in getting off of nuclear, and now they're being every bit as aggressive as getting at getting off of coal. When they started the the program, the utility companies were saying, "No, this is impossible. It'll never work."、Mm. But it's been possible, and it has worked.、Mm. And it, it's been hard. There's been some weird things in the German power markets,、mm. but they've done it. And I think Japan Japan could certainly do it if they focused on it and would would take those risks. Right? Yeah. So、that's why the the politics and the regulation plays a very critical role for the early stage innovation. Well, that's fantastic. Listen, Harumi, thank you so much for sitting down with me. I、yeah. really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much. And we're back. One of the things I really enjoyed about my conversation with Harumi was how it really demonstrated that entrepreneurship has become an acceptable career path. Not just in the U.S., but in Japan as well. Harumi found support for his vision not just in America, but in Japan. His ability to convince Kansai Electric to run a pilot program with Nature demonstrates, well, it demonstrates his own sales ability to be sure. But it also shows us how open to innovation even large traditional Japanese companies have become. And that's important. Now, getting back to Nature Remo specifically and smart homes in general, I think there's a lot of interesting things going on with smart homes and smart speakers, both globally and here in Japan. But it's clear that the market is being driven by very different forces than, say, smartphones. Sure. 
Convenience or just plain fun is a motivation for many. But how many people are really going to spend $300 or $400 so that they can press a button on their phone rather than flipping a light switch or pressing a button on a remote control? I mean, I would, and probably a lot of Disrupting Japan listeners would as well. But let's face it, guys. We're early adopters. We are not the mass market. So, perhaps, the future of smart homes will be financed at least in part by the companies that really benefit from the network effects. This might be electric utilities like Kansai Electric or TEPCO subsidizing the device so that they can better manage demand response. Or maybe cities themselves will chip in for smart home devices to better manage things like public transportation or water usage. Of course, no one knows exactly how this will play out. But maybe we need to change our thinking, to, to broaden our thinking, about the value of smart homes. Maybe the real value is not so much in the convenience that it brings us, but in the value that we can create together. If you want to talk more about smart homes and smart energy, Harumi and I would love to hear from you. So come by disruptingjapan.com slash show 142 and let's talk. If you leave a comment at the site, I guarantee you at least one of us, and probably both, will respond. And hey, if you get the chance please leave us an honest review on iTunes or post about the show on Facebook or LinkedIn or Twitter. And I'm not asking you to do this just out of some kind of vanity. But listeners like you talking about the show has been the way other people like us find out about the show. Word of mouth has really been the only way Disrupting Japan has grown. So it's important. And yeah, okay, it is a little bit of vanity as well, but, um, you know, help me out here and tell people about the show. But most of all, thanks for listening. And thank you for letting people interested in Japanese startups know about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan. <laughs>